If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is hour number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this September 9, 2018. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the news of the day. From a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down, our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. In hour number two of this edition of the podcast, you will not want to miss a fantastic interview with Matt Lewis, who is a columnist for the Daily Beast and a commentator for CNN, as we talk about uh, a lot of things you will not hear elsewhere. Uh, regarding the the nature of the conservative news media, the media in general, social media, and how it impacts how we got Donald Trump and how we're dealing with Donald Trump. Uh, Matt is, I guess you would call him a never-Trumper, although not quite as uh, passionate about it as I am, (laughs) though not too many people are. Uh, But by and large, it was maybe one of the best hours that we've ever done on this subject, so make sure you check that out. Hour number two of the podcast. Hour number one is generally our week in review, and uh, this is going to be jam-packed. In fact, I want to alert all of our affiliates. We may be going over our allotted time. We may be going over the hour. I say that facetiously because we have no affiliates. This is it. But this might be a longer than normal hour. Uh, Before we get into all the Trump news, and as usual, there's plenty of that, I, I feel very compelled to start off with this Serena Williams controversy at the U.S. Open. And uh, mainly because, to me, this story is emblematic of almost everything that is wrong with our culture and our media. And I think that by going through what really happened here, it will illustrate uh, not just what happened with Serena Williams at the U.S. Open final yesterday. That's of interest, but it's not, you know, all that significant in the broader scheme of things. But I think when you're going to hear me tell the story in a way no one else will tell it to you, you're going to realize, oh, wow, this kind of thing happens now all the time. This just happens to be one of those situations on steroids. So here's the situation, and I'm going to tell you the story as I believe it really happened. And you're going to see a theme throughout of this. By the way, there's, as, as always is, there's a Penn State angle to this, believe it or not. Trust me, you'll see it. But uh, there, here's what happened. Uh, Serena Williams was playing a, an upstart 
woman by the name of Naomi Osaka in the Women's U.S. Open final. This was significant for a couple reasons. One, Williams was trying to become the all-time leader in major championships from women's tennis. Of course, she has just given birth a year ago, and this was her first major championship since then. Well, actually, technically not, since she actually won while she was eight eight weeks pregnant. But the point is, this was going to be historic if she won. It was also going to be historic if Osaka won, because no Japanese player had ever won a major championship in women's tennis. Now, interestingly, Osaka is a great story. She uh, is the the child of a, of a Japanese mother and a Haitian dad. They came to the United States when she was three or four years old. And uh, so she's effectively American, although I guess technically still Japanese. And she was a huge Serena fan growing up. And she's a great player. But it was kind of out of nowhere that she even got to the finals. So I was curious about this, and I watched, like a lot of other people did. And one of the first things you need to understand to get the context, of course, context is everything, and we don't live in a culture where nuance means, there's no time for nuance, all right? Context and nuance have been totally thrown out the window. But to fully understand what happened here, you cannot look at what occurred in a vacuum. The first thing you need to understand is, Osaka was kicking Williams' ass, all right? Now, this is really important. I mean, she crushed her in the first set. It's best of three sets in women's tennis. She crushed her in the first set. Now, that's incredibly important context because it goes to Williams' mindset, all right? She's the heavy favorite. She's trying to make history, and she's getting her butt kicked by this pretty much unknown younger woman. She starts to panic, All right? So she now needs to win the second two sets. The second set, she's battling, and it's not like she's dominating. It's clear she's not going to be able to dominate this girl or intimidate her. So the the umpire, and I I think this was stupid, the umpire made a mistake, although it was technically perfectly fine. He gives her a warning because her coach was coaching her from the stands. He admitted this after the match. He was coaching her. She clearly saw it. Now, she may have misinterpreted it, and whether or not it made any difference, I don't know. I think, frankly, it's a stupid rule. However, it is a rule. It's almost never enforced, but it was enforced for some reason this time. I believe, and no one in the media will tell you this, I believe that Williams saw this as an opportunity to do two things to try to shift the momentum of the match by getting herself fired up and giving her a source of anger and a target for her vengeance. And number two, if that didn't work out, to give her an excuse for why she got her ass kicked. I firmly believe this. And to me, it's very obvious. I, I, I believe that she realized in that second set that she was in big trouble because Osaka wasn't going away and a third set, she might have realized, Williams, that she didn't have it in the tank for a third set. You got to remember, Osaka's a lot younger. Williams probably hasn't fully recovered yet from the, the pregnancy. She's getting older. She may have just felt like, I'm in big trouble here. And so she latches on to 
the attack from the umpire, and she makes a huge stink about this, and frankly, I think she protested too much. I would never cheat. I would rather lose, blah, 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 blah. Okay, fine. Now, again, I think the umpire made a mistake in issuing that first warning. But the way it works in tennis is you get a first warning, there's nothing that happens. Now, in a rational world, if Williams understood reality and the rules and didn't live in a world where she's a diva and get away with anything she wants, she would realize that she's now on very thin ice. Because the second time you get a warning, you lose a point. The third time, you lose a game. So she should have been on her best behavior if she really wanted to win. A true champion would have realized, okay, I got to suck it up. That was bullshit, but bullshit happens sometimes in life. I'm going to overcome this, and now I got to be careful. Was she careful? No. No. When getting broken, she smashed her racket into the ground, exploding it into pieces. You know what that means? 100% of the time, regardless of your gender, Regardless of your race, you smash your racket in anger, you get a warning. That's strike two. Strikes are the, are the best way to think about this. Okay? This is strike two. So she loses a point. That was 100% right on the part of the umpire. Now, should it have been strike two? Very debatable. But... Based upon the fact that she already had one strike, she should have been on her best behavior. She was not. So she gets strike two. She loses a point. She decides then to make a huge stink about this. And she starts to rail against the umpire. Now, a lot of people have latched onto, oh, she called him a thief, and that's bad, but that's not as bad as some other things that have been said without warnings. Okay, in a vacuum... That might be true. However, she didn't just call him a thief. She demanded an apology from the umpire on multiple occasions, and she threatened the the umpire by saying he will never work another match of hers as long as she lives. So it wasn't just the thief thing. People have latched on to that as, oh, that's all she did. Bullshit. That's not all she did. She would not let this go. And at that point, the umpire, and then you could argue that maybe the umpire should have been extremely restrained because of the circumstances. We're in the midst of a late in the second set. Serena's still in the match, but she's barely hanging on. If she loses a game, it's basically over. So should the umpire should swallowed it? I think that's a reasonable discussion. But to say that because he didn't, he's somehow a chauvinist? <laughs> which is now the media narrative, is complete, total bullshit. It's absurd. It did not happen that way. And and to suggest it... It's just flat-out ridiculous. It's flat-out ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But at that point now, Serena's in full meltdown mode. And now she brings out the the head uh, umpire, all the officials. She's you know, making it look like she might not even continue to play. We're now gotten a, a massive catastrophe on our hands. And to me, this reminded me a lot, this whole situation. And a lot of people, I've, I tweeted this and people did not get it on Twitter. 
uh, at least some people did not get on Twitter because I guess it's too nuanced. It's too sophisticated an analogy. I said, this is the tennis equivalent of when Mike Tyson bit off Evander Holyfield's ear. Because here's what happened with Tyson and, and Holyfield. Tyson was getting his ass kicked. He knew he wasn't going to win. So he panicked. And he created an distraction excuse and a reason for him to be disqualified so he wouldn't have to go through the ignominy of actually losing. Well, that's effectively what happened with Serena. Now, do I think that happened consciously? Probably not. It might have been subconscious, but it wasn't totally subconscious. Why? Because immediately, what does Serena Williams do? She starts playing the female card. Immediately. She starts saying, if I was a man, this wouldn't happen. Men say much worse. Hold on a second. What everyone seems to be forgetting conveniently here is the first two strikes. I spent a ridiculous amount of time on Twitter last night and this morning asking people for examples. Can you give me an example of an analogous situation? Of course, one of the things I've learned from the Trump era is people are really shitty at analogies. <laughs> Trump supporters are particularly bad at analogies, but no one can come up with one. They always say, oh, well, here's Roger Federer saying, uh, you go fuck yourself to the umpire. Okay, that's interesting. Show me where the first two strikes are, you fucking moron. Because when you got two strikes on you, the equation changes. It changes with regard to the, the context of what's going on with the umpire. And it also goes to why in the world are you pushing this? You lost the first set and you're in the middle of a, 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 a very tough battle in the second set. You've got, you know you already got one and two strikes on you. The last thing you should be doing is pushing this out of your own ego, looking for an excuse making yourself into a martyr. That's not the way a champion works. That's the way a loser works. That's someone in the midst of a meltdown. That's a superstar being exposed for the spoiled brat that she actually is. And so she does finish. To her credit, she remarkably wins the next game, but then Osaka puts her away. And now things get really interesting. Because And this is why it gets way more significant than what just happened with Serena. Because this is a classic example of how bullshit narratives get set in stone in this day and age of Twitter and social media and the way the media has become so politically correct and, and so afraid to attack uh, superstars, especially if they're female or especially if they're black or have some other special PC protection. But this is a classic example of how this happens. And I'm fascinated as to what's going to happen because I, I know all the signs. So everyone's kind of like, how do we react to this? This is unprecedented. No one knows. So what happens next is critical in setting the narrative. Now, the first person with a real opportunity to dictate the narrative is Tom Rinaldi of ESPN. Now, this is where we start to get into the Penn State thing because it's remarkable how many of these people fucked up the Penn State story, too. Tom Rinaldi was, is a guy who I've dealt with on the Penn State story. He was right at the epicenter of it. He helped fucked up that whole Paterno-Sandusky thing, mostly out of virtue signaling and PC reporting. 
and he's actually well-respected. He's supposed to be a journalist. And so he gets the first question during the ceremony with Serena, and he chokes. He choked way worse than Serena ever imagined she could have choked. He whiffs, and I believe he whiffs on purpose because Tom Rinaldi is not dumb. Tom Rinaldi is a white male who's got the cushiest fucking gig in the, in the goddamn world. And the only thing he can do at that point is, if he goes after Serena, it can blow up in his face. And he then might lose the gig. So what does he do? He doesn't even ask Serena about this. Instead, Serena, to her credit, and she's crafty about that. Trust me, she's no dummy. She knows how to manipulate this situation because she's done it her whole life. So she takes this opportunity of not being asked a legitimate question and she turns it into she's going to be Osaka's protector from the booze. Wait a minute, hold on a second. You're the one who created the problem. And now you're going to be her protector because... Osaka is in tears as her big moment, the moment of her lifetime is ruined, and everyone's booing this trophy ceremony. So Serena declares to the crowd, no more booing, and she hugs Osaka. And of course, Osaka's not going to do anything negative towards Serena. That's her idol. Uh, so, So Serena is able to manipulate immediately turning this whole thing around into from her being the bad guy to now she's the fucking hero. She's the hero and the protector of Osaka. In fact, the second question that Serena Williams was asked at her press conference, this is fucking amazing. The second question, first question was a general bullshit question. The second question was literally, how has your experience as a mother helped you to comfort Osaka. That was the second question, almost word for word. That was the question. So now the now the narrative is set. And it's further set by the fact that the 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 one person there, the one person there with the stature and the platform to maybe call out Serena is Chris Everett. Chris Everett is a legend. She's won the U.S. Open many, many times. One of the greatest um, tennis players in history. She was announcing the match. But guess what? She's conflicted because she's the one the USTA had pre-picked to give out the trophy. So now she's effectively on the team of the USTA. So what's their incentive? They're trying to tap this thing down. So Chris Everett knows where her bread is buttered. She knows that she's a charter member of this special club of tennis elite. So which side is she going to take? She's not going to go after Serena. She's going to protect Serena. So now everybody immediately sees where this is going. Everyone sees the momentum as, oh, this is what our position is supposed to be. We're supposed to rally around the black female superstar. That's what we're going to do. So Tom Rinaldi takes a dive. Chris Everett backs her up. So now the floodgates are open. Now it's the press conference. Nobody goes after her in the press conference. In fact, the only decent question that got asked at the press conference was, what would you tell your daughter in years in the future about what really happened here? And she 
was confused by the question at first, but then amazingly, Serena actually says that she would tell her daughter that she stood up for women's rights. That this was a women's rights issue. A women's rights issue. Again, let's be very clear. If she does not shatter her racket with a warning in the midst of a heated second set where she's lost the first set, none of this happens. This all happens because she decided to shatter her racket. That's the key to this whole damn thing. If that doesn't happen, we're not talking about this. America's not talking about this. None of this happened, and Osaka wins and gets all the credit and all the attention that she deserves. But Serena selfishly made sure that that didn't happen. And that one question that was halfway decent at the press conference actually got criticized, I saw, by women saying, a man would never get asked that question about what they would tell their children. Hold on a second. Serena is in the midst of a massive, massive marketing campaign centered around her child. So you don't get to get it. You have it both ways. You made her, your child, the issue. That is a perfectly legitimate question. So the narrative starts to get set. Now it turns to Twitter. And Twitter is a place where basically celebrity and popularity are everything. It's hard to imagine in this day and age what a black female superstar would have to do to have Twitter turn against them. And everybody who has a popular Twitter account, all the media types, they now all know what the narrative is supposed to be, especially the females. So every female media type, and I was watching it all night last night, is way pro-Serena. And then Sally Jenkins... Back to the Penn State thing. Sally Jenkins was the last person to interview Joe Paterno. She completely botched that whole situation, and she's totally wrong about the story. And here's all you need to know about Sally Jenkins. It's amazing to me that Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post is considered credible. You know what Sally Jenkins did? She wrote not one, but two ghostwriting books for Lance Armstrong. She believed Lance Armstrong when Lance Armstrong didn't believe in Lance Armstrong. She was completely duped by Lance Armstrong. In fact, one of my, almost no one saw this, but one of my favorite moments in the history of the media, in my interaction, I've had hundreds of interactions with these assholes. One of my favorite interactions, this was even before Penn State, or right at the beginning of it, but I can't remember, it wasn't related to Penn State, but Sally Jenkins was doing uh, one of those online Q&As. And this was before Lance Armstrong had been totally exposed, but I knew, all right? <laughs> I've been saying for years, this Lance Armstrong story is bullshit. You do not win however many uh, Tour de France's after you lose a testicle. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's something wrong here, okay? You don't come back from t- 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 testicular cancer and all of a sudden get way better unless you're cheating. And the evidence to me was overwhelming that he was cheating. So, Here's what happened. Sally Jenkins is doing a Q&A, and I say to Sally Jenkins, she had no idea who I was. I said, um, do you think it's possible that Lance Armstrong created the Livestrong charity as political cover so that when he was inevitably accused of cheating, that the media 
would take it easy on him. That was almost exactly what I said. Because it's important to point out, Lance Armstrong at one point had said in his defense that to go after him was to go after Live Strong, the charity. And I'm like, okay, you're fucking guilty as shit. Because only a guilty person relies on the, you can't go after me because you're going after my charity. And her response to me, Sally Jenkins' response to me, again, this is before everyone knew for sure Lance Armstrong was full of shit. Most people did, but she didn't. She actually says to me, that is the most cynical thing I have ever heard in my life. Well, guess who was fucking right? I was. Not you, Sally Jenkins. And so how Sally Jenkins recovers from being the mouthpiece for Lance Armstrong way after it was clear he was guilty as hell is beyond me. But she writes this column attacking the umpire, who, again, I don't think did a good job, as a, as a misogynist, as a chauvinist, that he couldn't accept a female questioning his power. And, of course, Twitter loved it. Oh, 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 Sally, thank you so much. Thank you, Sally, for, for putting into words what we so want to believe about our... Our wonderful hero or heroine, Serena Williams, this isn't really her fault. This is evil white males, or I guess he's not technically white. The guy's name was Ramos, but he looked white. Anyway, the, white enough, white enough to attack and be safe with it. And so, so this now becomes, the narrative is set. Then, I mean, there's been a couple, USA Today ran one decent column uh, that questioned all this and attacked Serena as being the person who was really at fault. But by and large... Almost all the media, and of course, all the other Chris Everts of the world, Billy Jean King, and all. And I, always, I love this. People will throw at me, well, you must be wrong because all these tennis people are saying that Serena was right. <laughs> Do you people not understand how this works? You are a member of an elite club. Once the club has decided what the narrative is, you're not allowed to go against that narrative or else you get kicked out of the club. That's how it works. And it's not just in tennis. It's in everything. It's in, and this is how stories and narratives get dictated now, largely because of social media and specifically because of Twitter. So then, I'm not done with the Penn State angle, believe it or not. So then, so one of the things I tweeted was about Sally Jenkins' column. I said, could somebody, could some one of these female reporters... Actually, let me make sure. I want to get this correct because uh, I want to because the wording is important. I, I was tweeting to um, one of these female reporters. I said, "A question for all of the female media types." Breathlessly retweeting Sally Jenkins' column, accusing the U.S. Open umpire of being a chauvinist. How exactly is advancing the idea that to hold a woman to the rules is inherently chauvinistic at all helpful to the cause of equal rights? Question mark. And I wake up, and apparently. Well, not apparently. It's pretty clear because several people have messaged me this. CNN had used that tweet to ask that question of their guest on this topic. And had, it's all seriousness, had they not told me who the guest was, I literally could have guessed it. The guest was Christine Brennan. Now, Chris, it's hilarious that it's Christine Brennan on like 18 million different levels, maybe not 18 million, but maybe at least 18 different levels, because one, Christine Brennan and I once briefly dated, like many, many years ago. Boy, that was a 
bad idea. But I mean, <laughs> I mean, she even visited my family and I on a family vacation at one point. I gave her the the title of her second figure skating book. She covers golf to this day because in 1996 at dinner in Nashville, Tennessee, I told her there's this guy named Tiger Woods who's going to be the biggest athlete in the world for the next 25 years. you got to get on the golf bandwagon. So this is a woman who, in theory, owes me a lot and should trust me a lot. She completely blew the Penn State story despite my numerous attempts to including an hour and a half long lunch we had at the pga championship in valhalla in louisville where she listened and then completely ignored me because she's a virtue signaler that she that's her profession she's a professional virtue signaler and she knows which side the virtue is especially on any women's issue so i knew exactly where christine was going to come down on this hilariously christine brennan actually thinks she's a center-right republican which is just freaking hilarious because she's incredibly pc liberal just like her friend sally jenkins they're very good friends so (laughs) in fact the last time i i saw christine she was sitting right next to sally jenkins so so and and apparently i didn't see it but apparently christine didn't even bother to answer the question because you can't answer the question because it doesn't work that way this was you know what this was this was george w bush's great adage the soft bigotry of low expectations. That's what this was. Serena was being held to a lower standard because she's a female and because she's a black woman. You're not allowed to criticize. No, 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 no. And I've been asking, give me an analogous situation. And frankly, the closest situation I can come up with was John McEnroe. A lot of people have been using McEnroe and Connors and Ilya Nastasi over the last... Uh, 24 hours to to prove that Serena got a raw deal. Well, first of all, you need to understand a lot of these morons don't get it. The rules changed because of McEnroe and Connors and the Stasi. The rules are totally different now. That's what the the whole code of conduct thing was. But they changed the code of conduct, and I think like 1989, 1990. And look for the videotape yourself. I tweeted it in 1990 at the Australian Open. John McEnroe went through a series of machinations very similar to what happened to Serena. And you know what? They were treated differently. McEnroe got disqualified. Totally. Serena didn't get disqualified. She just lost a game. Now, granted, it was a critical game. And I want to make clear for the, like, the third time. I think the umpire screwed this up. All right? I, I think under the circumstances, it probably would have been better I don't understand why the the coaching thing uh, got enforced when it did. Even though the, it's important to point out the coach admitted that he cheated. It's a stupid rule. That is the rule. It's almost never enforced. For some reason, it was at that time. So, to me, the most important element of this is this is this is not happening in an isolated situation. This is not a vacuum. This is a classic example of now how right and wrong get determined in our society with facts and logic meaning nothing. It's all about virtue signaling and who's popular and who the popular people are. And they're not making their opinions based upon what's right or wrong. It's what's good for them. And of course, you know, there's another element of this is what are our children learning from this? I do think that's an important deal. Our, our children are basically learning that if you're Serena and if you're a celebrity and you, you play the right card, you can get out of accountability. 
In fact, you can actually be a hero. Because to a lot of people, she's at least a martyr, if not a hero. There's a lot of similarities, actually, between this and the whole Colin Kaepernick story. Colin Kaepernick is being treated by the media a lot the same way that they treat Serena Williams, largely because he's perceived as a black athlete. Only after he, put, you know, he let his afro come out after he decided that he needed to do this national anthem protest. I wrote a column, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, telling you the completely different story that the media will not tell you about Colin Kaepernick. Because the, the basis of the Colin Kaepernick story is that he's been blackballed by the NFL because of his national anthem protest. That's bullshit. That did not happen. You, you forget about the anthem protest, which frankly I don't think is irrelevant. I mean, people don't get jobs in this society for lots of reasons, including political baggage. So he's got lots of political baggage, but even take political baggage out of the deal. I make a, I think, a very strong argument that based upon the last four years of his career, each of which got worse, especially for the team, which in his last year went 1-11 and with him playing, his stats got a little bit better, but that's because the team was so bad they were playing from behind all the time. He's not an NFL starting quarterback. And, he, and what makes the part of this that no one wants to understand, because it's a little bit uh, you know, complicated, or at least it takes your brain to work for more than two seconds, is that once you're not a starter, it's no longer worth it for an NFL franchise to build their offense around you. No one's going to build their offense around a potential backup. So if you're the backup, you have to be the same style quarterback as the starter. Kaepernick has a specific style that, by the way, is no longer really in vogue. There are a few that are like him, but there's only a couple of teams that have quarterbacks that they wouldn't have to blow up their offense if Kaepernick was their backup. He's just not good enough to warrant that. But he's a hero now. He's a Nike hero. And, of course, this is good for Donald Trump. Although... I have to say, you know, there was a, such a crazy week with regard to Trump, and this got totally lost. But in my view, one of the most uh, telling statements Trump has ever made that is not going to impact him at all, but in a rational world should have destroyed him, destroyed his credibility, even with Colt 45, was when he was originally asked about the Nike ad campaign starring Kaepernick. Trump said in an interview, this is not fake news, he said in an interview that Nike is a tenant of his and therefore it would be dumb for him to criticize them. Now, what? What? So what Trump was effectively admitting in an unguarded moment was, you know what, this whole Kaepernick thing on my part, it's all bullshit. It's just, you know, that whole patriotism thing, uh, you know, my whole NFL, anti-NFL vendetta, which probably goes back to my days as a USFL owner and the fact that I am I was blackballed by the NFL and I, and I hate those guys because they won't let me in their club. That's what's really going on here. It's not. It's nothing to do with the flag. It's nothing to do with patriotism. That's just what the cult buys. And frankly, you can buy me off. If you're if you're a tenant of mine and I'm making money from you, then I will not criticize you. That's what Trump said. And in the midst of all the chaos this week, it got 
completely lost. Then he kind of changed his tune a little bit. And now he's taking, now he's, uh, you know, today he's all excited about the fact that the ratings for the first NFL game were down 13%. Uh, Now, first of all, it's one game. Second of all, there was a rain delay. Mr. President, (laughs) that might have an impact on the television ratings. So uh, it's way too early to indicate that. However, if if that trend holds, I will say that it's probably the most direct economic impact that you could actually give Donald Trump credit for. So congratulations, Mr. President. You have actually impacted our economy in a particular way by diminishing the ratings for NFL football games. That's why you were elected. (sighs) My God. Anyway, this, this, with regard to Trump, this was, and it's hard to say this, but this was one of the crazier weeks. They, it seems like they get crazier and crazier, but this one was nutty. And there were several things that in a rational world really would have been devastating to any other president. I, I just want to, just for the record, go through the list. And I mentioned uh, this first one pretty extensively in our hour two interview with Matt Lewis, but He started this week by tweeting an absolutely, uh, completely outrageous and inappropriate criticism of his own attorney general, Jeff Sessions, the guy he appointed, the guy who was his first major political endorser, because Sessions had allowed his Justice Department to indict two Republican members of Congress who were running for re-election. And that this might harm their ability to hold on to the majority. What? What? It's just flat out ridiculous. It's beyond ridiculous. That's that's like criminal. I mean, that, that might be literally impeachable. Even if he hadn't run on draining the swamp. So he's ripping his own attorney general for having the audacity to allow Republicans to be indicted. So the so the implication, the clear implication is that Sessions should have jumped in to block indictments of Congress people because they're Republicans running for re-election. Again, from a guy who got elected saying we need to drain the swamp. That And that got lost because it happened on Monday. And it was followed by Trump threatening the FCC license of NBC, a network he got famous working for. He worked for NBC for many years. I met him backstage at the NBC Today show. He loved NBC. When he was hosting The Apprentice. But he threatened their license over the report that NBC had killed the Ronan Farrow, Harvey Weinstein allegation. Now, how rich is that, by the way? From a guy who has had awfully similar allegations against him as as Weinstein that never got reported because of the National Enquirer's ability to kill them. I mean, the, the level of hypocrisy and irony is just off the charts. But and the idea that you could even threaten anybody's 
FCC license over an allegation of that is insane. It's literally insane. Not to mention, no, by the way, there's always this element with Trump. He's so clueless, he doesn't even seem to understand, or if he does understand, he doesn't care because he just wants his cult to eat it up, that technically NBC as a network doesn't have an FCC license. They have several affiliates that they own. They have licenses. Okay, fine. Maybe that's what he meant. It's Twitter. He doesn't have enough characters, although he didn't use them all. Whatever. The point is, that's a dictator. That's what a dictator says. That's what a king says. If Obama had ever even remotely implied that FCC licenses would be uh, threatened because uh, a network did something he didn't like, regardless of what it was, there would be hell to pay, and rightfully so. But they didn't stop there. Then, of course, there was the infamous op-ed that was released on the New York Times anonymously by a supposed senior Trump administration official, and Trump ordered... Jeff Sessions, his attorney general, to pursue legal action potentially against both the New York Times and the writer. And he questioned whether or not the act of criticizing his administration anonymously as a member of that administration was, quote unquote, treason. Treason. What? That's not treason, folks. It's not even remotely illegal. Now, I think it was wrong, and I'll get to that shortly. It was wrong on part of the, the part of the writer as well as potentially the New York Times, depending on who that was, but it was not illegal. And it was it's not treasonous for a member of the administration to anonymously criticize that administration. And then also lost in all this was that Rudy Giuliani, the president's attorney, now granted, part of the problem here, although maybe this is by design, is that Rudy says so many things, no one knows what to take seriously. But he has said that Trump is not going to keep his promise, which was 100%. That was a quote. 100% Trump said live on national television that he would agree to testify before Robert Mueller's special counsel under oath. Well, Rudy said this week that, yeah, that's not going to happen. We're not going to respond in writing or in person. And, uh, of course, this seemed to verify a lot of what was apparently in the Bob Woodward book that's coming out this week, which indicated that his own lawyers did not think that Trump could testify because he's a pathological liar. That's, those are his, their words, according to Woodward, and that it would be a disaster and he would commit perjury. And this is not a big deal? I mean, you know, promises used to matter, and that was a big one. Promises used to matter. This is a lot like his tax return promise. When it matters, oh, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll do it um, as soon as I'm done with the audit or after I'm elected or if I'm elected, yeah, 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 yeah. Bullshit. Sure, I'll testify. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, you know, because at the beginning, I'm trying to fool people into thinking I've got nothing to hide. But when the rubber meets the road, I'm not going to do it because I'm a pathological liar and I got something to hide. That's what's really going on here. So all these, this list of things, to me, each one of them in any previous administration would be at least a week or two of scandalous 
news coverage. And I guarantee you, the vast majority of the American public has no idea any of these things happened because they're just bombarded, they're desensitized, they're tuned out, they don't believe anything, they only believe what they want to believe. Fox News Channel ignores all this because it doesn't help them with the cult. And Trump's approval rating basically stays exactly as I've always told you it would. Right in that 40, I think I, my prediction was it'll never go below 36 and it'll never go below 40, above 43. And he's at 41 right now. That's, that's, it's going to be there forever. There's never going to be a change in either dramatically in either direction. It looked like there might be a slight change. There was a slight change in the negative after John McCain's funeral, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But it appears now that that's now faded away because there's a couple percentage points of people out there that go with whatever the last thing they heard was. <laughs> and then they forget about it and then they move on. And so nothing really matters. That's the bottom line of it. As far as the Woodward book, I wrote a column about this, which you can uh, read at uh, freespeechbroadcasting.com. I kind of wrote two columns, actually. And while I'm interested in reading it, um, there's some important concepts there. The biggest one seems to be, if you believe the Bob Woodward book, and this is stunning in a normal world, but not in the world we're living in, it appears as if the theme of the book is Trump is really not president. And I don't say that facetiously or that's not hyperbole that's seems to be the premise it's also kind of the premise of the new york times op-ed which clearly dovetails with the woodward book book the the picture that we're getting here is that trump is actually more of like a talk show host a shock jock that we're all forced to pretend is president because you never know when he might actually do something that he might, you know, pardon somebody, which he can do because he's a king, or you know, sign some executive order. And so, unlike our actual shock jock that you can ignore once you realize they have no real power, we have to pretend that this one is relevant because, in theory, at any given moment, they might actually have power if they're able to get around. <laughs> the parts of the administration that are preventing them from exerting that power, or maybe they actually want to do something that those in the quote-unquote resistance don't have a problem with. So it's this bizarro world where we all have to pretend that the intellectual farts of this crazy man who is our president might actually have some real significance to them. Because sometimes they do. But this is a vision of, of Trump that, while it's somewhat comforting, is really pretty scary. Because how are foreign nations going to interpret this book? I mean, we are incredibly vulnerable. Incredibly vulnerable. Because we don't have somebody who either has command of what's really going on or has the moral authority to do anything should we ever be faced with a real crisis. And that's the part of this whole Trump thing that of many that, that really drives me bananas is, is that the Trumpsters don't understand Trump has no moral authority in a crisis. None. Zero. And we've been lucky so far that nothing has happened but that's not always going to be the case. 
he might be president for another six and a half years. We're not going to go through eight years without a crisis. Even Trump's not that lucky. So, but I wrote the calm about Woodward's book from the standpoint of, yeah, this is great. But if there's no tapes that are, that are actually released, it's all irrelevant. And that kind of pisses me off. It, in, in, the, in the New York Times op-ed and the, and the Woodward book, I wrote a column, a separate one, about the cowards are never going to bring down Trump, and that's all we got are cowards. We're living in a nation of fucking cowards, especially among our elites, because life is just too easy. It's too cushy, and nobody wants to risk that. No one cares about anything but themselves. So Woodward made a deal, it seems like, and let me, I'm going to put some caveats on this. I'm interpreting based upon what we have learned so far from the book. I hope I'm wrong, but it appears as if Woodward made deals with people to not reveal the sources of his quotes. Therefore, he can't release the tapes. Without the tapes, it's all meaningless. So it's good for his book. Yeah, it's it's certainly worthy of putting in a book and it'll sell lots of copies. But as far as impacting What's really going on? It will have zero impact. In fact, it will actually help Trump by further desensitizing us. Because who's ever going to have a better shot at Trump than a respected you know, liberal media icon like Bob Woodward in a book where he had access to hundreds of hours of conversations with people within the administration, apparently? Nobody. That's never going to happen again. And so when this goes by the wayside and has no impact, Trump's unstoppable or at least impervious to any major meltdown or attack. It's like he's inoculated. And so I got a problem with Woodward making that deal. I got a problem with the New York Times making the deal with the, with the anonymous op-ed writer. Now, I don't know who wrote the op-ed if it wasn't someone famous, then I think the New York Times had no business running this. None. If it was somebody famous, okay, I can see certain circumstances where that's legitimate, but I don't know that it is somebody famous. It feels weird to me that somebody who we know who has a lot to lose would would do this. There's been speculation. Joe Scarborough and some others have said it's Kellyanne Conway. I'm not buying Kellyanne Conway. Um, yes, I think she might agree with the op-ed. Her husband clearly would agree with the op-ed. But here's the key to me that it's not Kellyanne Conway. I am fascinated by the phone call between Bob Woodward and Donald Trump that got released on the day of the excerpts. If you haven't listened to it, listen to it on your own or maybe listen to it again because i have to tell you and i know that i am accused of having trump derangement syndrome which is weird because i'm always right about what's going to happen with regard to him and it's usually in a positive direction to him so i don't believe i have that i think i'm very objective but i'm really objective here i actually think that trump comes off looking better in that phone call than woodward does woodward comes off looking like a guy who supposedly knew so much about the administration and the inner workings of the administration, but didn't know who to contact to get in an interview with Trump. That's what it felt like listening to that conversation. And I've never been a, I have never bought in. I don't buy into any, 
And anybody who's a media darling is automatically <laughs> subject of suspicion to me because I have so little faith in the news media. But I have never bought into this idea that Bob Woodward is infallible. In fact, I think when you become a celebrity journalist to that degree, you buy into your own bullshit. And I, I think a lot of times you become a worse journalist because of it. I think you lose your senses. I think you lose your perspective. I think you start to think you can't do anything wrong. And so, and Woodward has been accused pretty credibly over the years of doing some pretty shady stuff, including all the way back to Watergate. So I don't buy that Woodward is infallible. He's getting on in years. Frankly, he sounded a little senile to me in that phone conversation. Trump, on the other hand, seemed calm as could be, almost too calm. And I'm not suggesting that this is what happened, but... And with Trump, it's so difficult to interpret him because sometimes he's a fucking moron. And sometimes he's a legitimate savant-like genius. And when it comes to the media, he is often a genius in manipulation. I think it's possible that Woodward got set up. Possible. Underlying possible. I don't know that, but it just that phone call feels very weird to me. But in that phone call... Kellyanne Conway gets put on the phone by Trump. Now, if she was the, uh, the, the person who wrote the New York Times op-ed, which was clearly in conjunction with the Woodward book and was ready to go, uh, it had to be ready to go, at least in concept. It didn't happen that fast for it to be published like a day and a half after the Woodward book excerpts come out. If she was that person, Unless she is the greatest actress of all time, here she jumps on this phone call, which she has no way of knowing is being recorded because she was not on the call when Woodward told Trump it was being recorded. She apparently had lunch with Woodward and promised to set up an interview with Trump, and she didn't do it. And she basically is telling him on the phone call, this is my interpretation, hey, Bob, go fuck yourself. That's what she's basically telling him. Oh, yeah. I'll put you back on the phone with the president. Go fuck yourself. That's not the person who wrote the op-ed. It's completely inconsistent with that. So I'm not buying Kellyanne Conway. But here are two things that you will not hear anywhere else, at least I don't think you'll hear anywhere else, with regard to the op-ed that I think are really important that tell you what's really going on here and tell you that that op-ed is probably true. It's kind of amazing that no one has pointed this out. Let's pretend that the op-ed created a misperception of the chaos in the White House, right? That's, that's what Trump would have you believe. Let's pretend that's true. There would be hundreds, literally hundreds of people with a massive incentive, all with the ability to immediately call up the New York Times and say, I am a senior Trump administration official. I'm actually known, and I want to rebut this op-ed in my own name. And the New York Times would be forced to publish that. Why has that not happened? Why has that not happened? Why? Correct. Yeah, that's the reality. There's no other way to interpret. The silence is deafening. Correct. Yeah. The, the silence is deafening. 
There should be. I mean, you even if it wasn't true, I'm amazed it hasn't happened because this person would be a hero to Trump. You would get to kiss the boss's ass in the biggest way possible. Yet no one has done so. Correct. That is significant. The absence of evidence oftentimes is the most significant evidence you can find. The op-ed must be true because there's been nobody willing to put their name on a rebuttal. And by the way, the other thing about this that's fascinating is, so there's supposedly this search within the White House for who this traitor, as Trump puts it, could be. Is it not a really bad sign that when someone writes that you have no idea what you're doing in the job and you're basically not even president, that you can't even narrow the suspect down to more than a couple of dozen people as to who it might be? That's not a good sign, folks. That's also a sign that it's probably true. All right? Now, of course, none of this is going to hurt Trump. Uh, Speaking of things that are not going to hurt Trump that should, and largely because of media incompetence, I wrote another column about the National Enquirer and what we've learned about what I predicted during the campaign. I said constantly, they are an arm of the Trump campaign, and damn it, I was dead right. I was 100% right on that. I did an interview with Al Jazeera, the network, television network in Great Britain, which you can find online, about this. And the point that everyone is missing on the National Enquirer is that Trump went into office knowing he was blackmailed by the National Enquirer, which to me is at least as bad as going into office knowing that you might be blackmailed blackmailed by Vladimir Putin and Russia, both of which might be true and, by the way, might be connected. How come no one is asking the question? No one is asking the question about this, this safe of stuff that the National Enquirer had as blackmail over Donald Trump when he took office that they might not sell that to a foreign nation. I mean, think about what that would be worth. They're a business. I don't believe David Pecker is really Donald Trump's friend. I think they had a relationship of convenience all these years. Trump doesn't, no one really likes Donald Trump. His own wife doesn't even like Donald Trump. It's a relationship of convenience. He would sell him, literally in this case, for the right price in a heartbeat. And no one's even asking this question, except me, which, again, you can find that column at freespeechbroadcasting.com. Now, speaking of things in the realm of the National Enquirer and things that are not going to hurt Trump and things that, you know, where the, the narrative may or may not be right or wrong, I need to do a mea culpa because a story that we did a lot of investigation on, the whole Elliot Brody, Sheriff Bouchard, supposed Donald Trump connection. This was the story involving Paul Campos, the law professor from the University of Colorado, who put out the theory in uh, the New York Magazine a couple months ago that this GOP fundraiser, Elliot Brody, who paid former Playboy model Sheriff Bouchard $1.6 million using Michael Cohen as his lawyer, was actually a way to cover up Donald Trump having impregnated Bouchard while he was in office and paying her that money to take the blame. Now, this was a theory that I thought made a lot of sense. To be fair, I don't know that I ever got beyond, say, 80 or 90% certain that it was true or that some 
version of it was true, although I was pretty high up there. Never got to 100%, but I was pretty darn high up there. For the last few weeks, maybe longer than that, Paul Campos and I have been communicating where I have been trying to talk him down from this theory. Uh, He was going to be on this show about a month ago, and for logistical and timing reasons, we decided the last second not to do that. But in Paul's defense, this story is so weird that every new fact we got that could be interpreted as contradicting his theory could also be interpreted as being in favor of his theory. Well, this past Friday, we finally learned the contents of Shara Bashard's lawsuit against Elliot Brody, who decided, bizarrely in my view, to stop paying her the $1.6 million that he paid her to have the abortion to cover up his affair and illegitimate child. And it is impossible for a rational person to look at the contents of that lawsuit and say that there was no relationship between Brody and Bouchard. I mean, the details are just too explicit. They're too gross. They're too specific. I mean, this guy, Brody, wow, he makes Trump look like a good guy. He not only forces her, apparently, to have an abortion, uh, but he gave her herpes, and uh, it was apparently a really, I mean, horrible relationship. Why? There's so many elements of this thing I still don't understand. But to not pay her the money after forcing her to have an abortion when you're contractually obligated to do so is such a dick move. And I don't know how he's going to get away with it, and it's certainly not going to help him because— Frankly, had he just kept paying, this story was going to go away. And now it's been a much bigger story. I mean, he's in much bigger problems now. And in fact, he's being investigated by the feds for influence peddling with the Trump administration. And and there, here's how I started to move away from the theory. And I wanted to give Paul as much slack as possible. But the first thing that happened that made me go, wait a minute, is that Michael Avenatti, Stormy Daniels' attorney, who uh, has, boy, he's slippery, that Avenatti, because he took as much ownership of the Brichard-Brody theory as he possibly could without actually having any accountability to it. You know, he, he would throw out hints, hint, hint, wink, wink. But, of course, now he's wiped his hands of it. Well, originally, if you may recall, Avenatti was going to depose Bouchard here in Los Angeles. I was actually going to show up for it. Well, that got canceled. And Avenatti stopped returning the text messages of Paul Campos. And I was was telling Paul, Paul, this is bad news. Avenatti knows something that we don't know. Because Avenatti would be all over this, you know, like a hungry dog on, on fresh beef. There is no way. This doesn't make any sense. And Paul kept saying, no, 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 no. And he and I talked a lot about confirmation bias, and you got to be really careful that you don't interpret everything in the way you want to interpret it because this might not be right. Well, then there's, but here's the part that, in, again, in Paul's defense, the attacks on his theory were so pathetically weak and so poorly sourced that I kept thinking, Gosh, if this wasn't, if his theory wasn't, 
at least somewhat right, wouldn't you be able to blow this thing up in half a second by just releasing a photograph of Bouchard and Brody together? I mean, these got to be the only two people in the modern history of the world that that were had, got pregnant together. She apparently wouldn't have his child, which I don't understand. And there's no photograph of the two of them together? And there's another thing in Paul's defense that I think really, and, and, and this had an effect on me too. This kept me, what I'm about to tell you, which is basically exclusive, is something that kept me believing there was something to the, to the Trump theory for a lot longer than I should have. And it's understandable because Paul Campos got access to an audio clip from Shara Bouchard, which bizarrely she sent to somebody via Facebook. And here's the transcript of what she said. Now, you tell me, if you're Paul Campos or John Ziegler, and you're suspecting that Shara Bouchard actually had an affair with Donald Trump, and that this whole thing is a cover-up by Michael Cohen, in a a bizarre series of circumstances that are so off the charts, you think there's no way. So I want you to put yourself in in our mindset, and you get audio from Shara Bouchard saying the following, okay? Here's a transcript. So anyway, I think you're right, but in their eyes, I'm just some fucking bimbo whore, you know? It doesn't really matter because it doesn't phase me. I mean, I've always been that in the general public's mind, you know? But, um, yeah, it's kind of mean. Obviously, I don't think there are many people who are hitting on me. I mean, yeah, sure, they're just people who are being rude. They just don't know how to talk and be nice about it. But generally, I think, yeah, you're right. Now, this is the important part. This is Shara Bouchard talking to this anonymous person. In a Facebook audio message. They think that I'm going to like uh, reveal this freaking bombshell of a story. And it's not like I'm not. I wish I could. But I can't. And obviously if that fat ass Elliot didn't, um, if I wasn't stuck with this agreement then I could, you know, but especially what I had to do in order to get it, like, come on, like that if you ask me it wasn't enough, like I'm giving birth a month from now exactly to this day yesterday. Yesterday was the day that in a month exactly from then I would have had a baby. Now, when I read how a rational person can read that and not think, holy shit, this whole thing is a cover-up because what she's saying there is the way I read it is Jesus I can't blow this story up I had to, I went through an abortion I wanted to have this kid I got I had to do all this to get my 1.6 million dollars if I t- if I say the bombshell part of this I'm gonna lose the 1.6 million dollars and I can't do that because I've been through so much right that's what this sounds like to me and that's the way Paul interpreted it and frankly I, I must have read this to half a dozen people of mostly women who I trust to get their impressions and their impressions were all exactly the same. This woman is covering something up. I, and logically it's Trump because otherwise what's the fucking freaking bombshell. And I mean, they, we, and Paul had also narrowed it down to the exact day of the, uh, of when the baby got conceived September 21st of last year, they were both in New York City with nothing apparently really to do. So this was not a harebrained conspiracy theory. It just appears as if it didn't turn out to be true. And in trying to figure out 
how we misinterpreted this, I think the key, I think the key is the $1.6 million. Because Paul and I originally thought, that doesn't make any fucking sense. Why is Brody paying $1.6 million to cover up an affair? No one cares about Elliot Brody. Trump was only paying $130,000 to Stormy Daniels. Well, here's why. Here's the part that we didn't fully understand at the time. And it actually makes sense. Brody thinks that with Trump's election, he's got access to the White House in a way that is going to allow him to cash in on that via influence peddling, which is what he's under investigation for by the feds. If it comes out as a GOP fundraiser that he has either had an illegitimate child with his Playboy model or that she facilitated an abortion at his request, that's over. Because he loses his position within the GOP. He becomes toxic even for Trump. And this is part of why it's so difficult to interpret anything that involves Donald Trump. Because you're always thinking, well, maybe the normal rules don't apply with Trump. Maybe Trump would actually think this is awesome. Hey, you fucked a Playboy model. You're one of me. You're, you're, you're part of my tribe. Hey, buddy, let's do some business together. I mean, that, that's as crazy as that sounds. That's actually plausibly Trump. So it's very difficult to interpret anything involving Trump. And let's be clear. The coincidences here were off the charts. Not just Michael Cohen, who it's possible Brody was using because they were on the same GOP fundraising board, but Cohen used the same alias for Brody that he used for Trump. What a horrible lawyer Michael Cohen is. He didn't even bother to change the fucking template. So anyway, when I'm wrong, I'm the first person to admit I'm wrong, but I got to tell you, in this particular situation, there was a lot of good reasons to be wrong. And I am still baffled as to why it is people who had a great opportunity to blow this thing up didn't blow it up. You know what it feels like? It feels a little bit like the whole Obama birtherism thing in that for some reason it appeals, it, appear, it appears as if people close to this story had an incentive to keep it going when they easily could have blown it up and they did not. And I don't fully understand why they didn't, but they didn't. And um, so I'm the, I have no animosity towards Paul Campos. I actually kind of feel bad for him. But if it's important to, when you're wrong, you got to admit you're wrong. And we were wrong on that one. Unless, unless, and I still think there's a 1% chance that there's still something very off about this story. But I wanted to at least acknowledge that. Um, gosh, there's so many other things to talk about. Uh, but we're kind of up against how long we've been going on for like a, an hour now, aren't we? Wow. I, I told you this was going to be a long hour. We're an hour 10. Oh, wow. All right. So I'm going to wrap this up with a couple of other things. Um, the McCain funeral, uh, which I wrote about uh, a column, which I, I urge you to check out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. I know it was controversial because of the apparent swipes at Trump, although Kind of hilarious when you never use a guy's name and his fans think that you're attacking him. Doesn't that kind of prove the attacks are real? Because otherwise, how'd you know you were talking about Trump? I mean, I, I get that Meghan McCain referencing making America great again is pretty obvious. But some of the other stuff was rather subtle. Uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama, they were pretty subtle. I loved it. I've never seen anybody 
who uh, orchestrated their death better than John McCain. I mean, my gosh, what a great gift. I mean, dying of brain cancer is a horrible way to go. I mean, and it's clear that the last few months were horrible. But leading up to that, it gave him at least time to know when he was going and how to plan it. And he orchestrated it absolutely perfectly. I urge you to check out, if you can find it on HBO, For Whom the Bell Tolls, which was a documentary that McCain did uh, basically after he left public life, which was phenomenal. You know, it was very difficult to to watch the whole McCain thing because I do feel as if this was much larger than one man. This felt like part of our country that's never coming back was dying with him. But I felt good for him that he was able to orchestrate it the way that he, he wanted to. Um, and, and he had to be chuckling. <laughs> if, if he's still around somewhere, he had to be chuckling at, at Trump's reaction to this and the fact that uh, at least temporarily Trump's poll numbers went down because of it. But this idea that he's going to be remembered is that, you know, his memory will be of any real impact, like on Lindsey Graham as good buddy. Lindsey Graham has already forgotten about John McCain. Lindsey Graham is completely worthless at this point. Uh, he's a total Trump sycophant. And it's going to be disgusting. And when the Mueller thing really hits the fan, we're going to really miss John McCain because, as I've said before, he's the one guy that could have. Made a, maybe made a difference here in standing up for what was right. McCain was not perfect in any way, shape, or form, but I was glad that he got his his uh, proper send off, and um, and good for him. Now, now, send offs are a big deal for me for some reason. I think it's partially because I don't believe in an afterlife. It's also partially because this time of the year is particularly difficult for me personally. Uh, those who have followed me know that today, uh, September 9th, is the anniversary of my mother being killed in a car accident uh, back in uh, 1994. Uh, yesterday was her, would have been her 75th birthday. And so that really has a ma- – obviously, when you lose your parent at a fairly young age, that has a massive impact, especially when you're a mama's boy like I was. But the, the reality is that it impacts, at least for me, your worldview – Uh, about how to live your life and specifically how death works. And I think that fed into how much uh, I respected and was happy for McCain and he was able to orchestrate his death properly because with my mother, we never got anything like that. I mean, you never got to say goodbye. You never got to say thank you. In my mind, I'm never going to get that opportunity because I don't believe in an afterlife. Um, and 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 it influences, by the way, even like your kids. Like my daughter, Grace... You know, Grace, uh, I got to tell this story because it's, it's so uh, fantastic. Uh, you know, Grace Ziegler has been on this show many times. Th- this is Grace talking about Donald Trump a couple of years ago on the beach. And this was completely unprovoked, uh, but this gives you some context. I am the leader. Do as I say. <laughs> <laughs> Who is that, Grace? Who were you imitating? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that was that was last summer. That was Grace Ziegler talking about her view of Trump. So we're watching the McCain funeral, and you know my my wife is not up yet because it's a Saturday morning, and she, Grace is asking me, "So why are we watching this funeral?" I said, "Well, because John McCain was a hero, and because the presidents are going to speak." 
And Grace says to me, you mean Trump? And I say, very matter of fact, they said, no. And completely spontaneously and no lie, Grace responds, oh, thank all the gods. <laughs> Which was so fantastic <laughs> that even a six-year-old girl knew that it would have been horrible <laughs> if Donald Trump had been allowed to speak at John McCain's funeral. But, you know, back to my, back to my mother, the, um, what's, there's, a, there's so much about that that obviously impacts you in life. Uh, and it definitely impacted the way that I have lived my life and that you, when that happens so suddenly and with no warning, you live, whether consciously or subconsciously, as if any day could be your last. And it impacts your decision-making, at least to me it did, quite dramatically. And as far as, you know, what she would think about things today, I have to admit, part of it, and this is going to sound contradictory, is a little bit of a relief that she's not around to see some of the things today. Because she would have hated Trump. She would have hated what's happened to our country and our culture in so many ways. It would have been, it's a shame she never got to meet any of her 13 grandkids or see any of her four kids get married. Um, but frankly, for me also, all the horrible things that I've had happen in my life and my career have been a lot easier to take knowing that she's not around because she's the only real person I would have cared about that who would have been disappointed. I was thinking about this last night. If that had never happened, I would probably, and this would I'm not saying this is for the good, I'd probably still be doing talk radio and never gotten fired because I wouldn't have wanted her to go through that disappointment or to to disappoint her in any uh, significant way because I knew she was at least somewhat living vicariously through me. So now that she's dead, I have that freedom of it doesn't really fucking matter because no one really cares. I mean, let's face it. When it comes down to it, your mother is really the only person that really, 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 if you're lucky, really, really, really cares about what happens to you. Other people might fake it, but they're mostly just faking it. Uh, And she only get one mom. And so th- this whole time period is always a very difficult time period for me because the her birthday, anniversary of her death, and of course, obviously, 9-11 is in two days. Um, there is one, <laughs> this kind of bizarre and eerie and, and I think kind of funny, and this is the way I'll end this particular hour, uh, comparison, though, that's, that, that uh, I think you'll find interesting regarding my mother's death. The, there are a bizarre series of uh, similarities between what happened with my mother and Princess Diana. Uh, and here they are, which, again, trying to end this on a, on a somewhat jovial note. So my father is really very similar to a, a Prince Charles-type character. He's very establishment, uh, you know, very classy kind of guy. He kind of looks a little bit like Prince Charles. He's kind of a wuss uh, in real life, but in a in a in a high character sort of way. Um, and so th- there's a similarity there. He's definitely also has traveled in some very uh, classy realms in his career and life. I mean, he's dealt with some very big time people. So he is a Prince Charles esque character. My mother, much like princess Diana uh, had a little rogue in her. <laughs> she, Hard to believe that I'm the one that I took after her, right? You know, didn't have any problem upsetting the apple cart. You know, definitely had a little mischievousness to her. Was very outspoken, unlike my father, who never said anything to 
upset anybody in his whole life. So there, there was a similarity there from a personality standpoint. So both couples end up getting divorced after having kids. So they both have kids. They both end up getting divorced in similar messy fashions. And after the divorce, both my mother and Princess Diana end up, you know, taking on new boyfriends. Soon after the divorce, my mother starts dating a local judge in Philadelphia and she gets in a car accident and they both are killed. Princess Diana, not long after her divorce with Prince Charles, with her boyfriend, gets in a car accident. They're both killed. What's What makes this whole thing... And by the way, they happen within days of each other, both in early September, uh, within a couple of years, 94 and 97, I guess it was. So three three years apart. And then just to wrap this whole bizarre series of of coincidences together, I end up having a daughter named Diana, whose middle name is Carol, which was my mother's middle name, or my mother's actual name. My mother's name was Carol Ann Trainer, And so Diana Carol is my second daughter. My first daughter is Grace, kind of named for Princess Grace, who, oh, by the way, was also killed in a car accident. So, um, I don't know what to make of all that, except uh, I've always felt like uh, there's a good chance that I'm going to die in a car accident, probably tweeting something. So, <laughs> it's faded. There's nothing I can do. I just hope I just hope the last tweet is a good one. <laughs> All right. On that note, that'll do it for the very extended edition of the Week in News here on the World According to Zig podcast. Make sure you check out all those columns at freespeechbroadcasting.com. Please listen to our number two. The Matt Lewis interview, which is uh, fascinating, the Daily Beast uh, columnist and uh, commentator on CNN. As always, I only ask uh, two things of you. Number one, please share this via word of mouth, social media, Twitter, Facebook, what have you. And number two, uh, please uh, do yourself a favor. If you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.